We're going to be reading from Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they, say, they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one with whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shears in silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for transgression of my people, and they made his, gre- made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence." And there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was, the, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The, Lord, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities therefore I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and he was numbered with the transgressors yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors I'm going to start with a question that's going to be the, the biggest test of the morning to see if you're a liar or not How many of you sinned this week? (laughs) Okay, let's just get that out of the way. Who didn't raise it? No, just kidding. (laughs) We get that out of the way, right? We we all sin, right? We've all sinned this week. Now, now here's where I want to start. Isn't it amazing that you are alive and breathing still? For sinning against an infinite creator, an infinite God, where we know that the wages of sin or the result of sin, the penalty for sin is death, the very fact that 200 of us are alive and breathing and sitting here this morning is amazing. And it's a testament to God's grace and to his love. 
But sin is one of those things that we have to deal with every day and every moment. Sin is a word that isn't necessarily used that often anymore in our culture. It's one of those, oh, you're being religious. Don't tell me I sin. Well, here's the thing. Sin is any act, thought, or action that is contrary to the character of God. Anything that falls short or misses the mark of the character of God. And so when we say sin, we're talking about anything we do that doesn't match up to what God wants me to do or what He's told me to do out of His perfect, beautiful character. And so, yeah, we all struggle with sin. But God has given an answer to sin. You know, we, we have all kinds of ways we try to avoid sin. If we're caught in something, it's, it's really easy to try to get out of it, right? We're looking for a scapegoat. I don't know how many times in my home I might hear, it was Alicia. And I think that they think there's strength in numbers. If two of them can... (laughs) The the sisters in the room are like, wait a minute. (laughs) If the two brothers can get together and have the same story that it was Alicia, then maybe mom and dad will believe it. We've been around the block a few times. We we pretty much know who's doing what and um, what their, their character is like. But we try to get out of it. And, and I resonate that because, with that because as a child, it usually was my brother or sister. <laughs> I wanted to make sure my sister wasn't here before I <laughs> said that. Don't we think that, though? Don't we think that? You know, I, I, I use basketball as an example a lot. My sons um, play basketball, and they were in a championship game this week. And after the game, I can count on it. I can count on every foul listed and why it wasn't a foul on them. Because we look for ways out of what we've done. We look for scapegoats, someone else to blame, a reason to justify our action. This morning, we want to talk about the fact that we do have a scapegoat or a scape lamb. And we're going to come to Isaiah 53, the pinnacle of the book of Isaiah. The, the, the top of Mount Everest, as one author said, he said these five matchless stanzas of the fourth servant poem are the Mount Everest of Messianic prophecy. And you can argue it's the Mount Everest, the pinnacle of Isaiah. I would argue it's the pinnacle of the entire Old Testament and what the Old Testament is, has been looking forward to. To understand that, I need to go back to where we started in Isaiah, if you humor me for a moment. you remember where I had two volunteers up here and we put a piece of yarn up here? And I I used a a colored pen to try to color different events and that didn't work, but you, you got to see the idea. Well, I do have a piece of yarn up here and we need to come back to seeing the big picture of what God is doing throughout all of creation, throughout all of our history, so we can understand where Isaiah 53 fits in. And we know at the beginning of time, and let's hope that I can reach this, the beginning of our time, Barry, just watch me if I need your help. We know that the beginning of our time, God created the heavens and the earth. And He created all humankind. He created everything that is for His glory and for our pleasure. And He wanted relationship with Adam and Eve. He wanted relationship with us. But we also know that very soon after, not long after, Adam and Eve defied their Creator. And they rebelled and sin entered the world. And they ate of the tree, the one thing God said not to do. They ate of the tree because they didn't trust what God had said. 
And at that moment, the wages of sin is death, and it defiled creation. And that sin that came in at the beginning of time is why we have disease and sickness and why we bear the consequences of sin and guilt and shame and and why everything that has gone wrong with creation has gone wrong. Because God didn't create those things into creation. Sin brought those into creation. And at that point, God as creator, just like you do if you're creating a pot or anything else, God as creator had the, the right and he would have been justified to just destroy the whole thing and start over. It's done. But because of his great love and his great mercy, and he's a God of grace, not just righteousness and holiness, and he is those things, but of grace and love and mercy, he said, no, that's not the end. And he said, here's where the story is going to end. I'm going to recreate And I'm going to recreate a new heaven and a new earth that my people, the people that follow me, will have sin wiped out and tears wiped out and sorrow and grief wiped out. And they will live with me and I will be with them and they will be my people. That right there is the story of the Bible. That's the big picture. Sometimes I say the whole Bible is the story of God redeeming creation back to himself. Because creation is groaning and waiting for that redemption that we have brought on creation with our sin. As we look at Isaiah, we've tried to look at everything in between here. Because Isaiah jumps. And as as Pastor Andrew said last week, sometimes we're dealing with creation. Sometimes we're dealing with the new heaven and new earth. And actually from in in a few weeks, we're going to get really heavily into the new heaven and new earth. But how do we get from here to here? Knowing that God has had this plan from day one, from before day one of our time, he knew that this would happen, and he said, I already have a plan to make all things right, for you will be with me. And Isaiah is challenging us to view all of our circumstances in light of the big picture instead of our little myopic trials and troubles and where we're at. And so we see Isaiah himself writing somewhere around B.C. 700. And he's writing, that's going to sag a little bit. (laughs) He's writing as Assyria is knocking on the door because Israel, who God chose to be his servant, who God chose and ordained to be a blessing to all nations, they have walked away from God because sin is still present. And so Assyria comes and Isaiah warns them and the northern kingdom is wiped out, gone. The southern kingdom with Hezekiah comes back and trusts God But it's a temporary reprieve because then they walk away from God and we have Babylon taking them into captivity. And so Isaiah is writing here and the first 39 chapters to a people living here and he's still writing here but then the next nine chapters and beyond to a people in exile in Babylon. And see, there's still a problem here, isn't there? If sin is what caused the problem and sin deserves to be wiped out, The ultimate plan is a new heaven and new earth. And we see these little blips in history of sin that they think is the end of the world. And God said, no, no, my plan's still going. The problem is sin still has to be dealt with. There is no way for you and I to enter the new heaven and the new earth unless our sin is taken care of. And so that's where we come to Isaiah 53. Because here, the the children of Israel, they saw a temporary temporary reprieve from Assyria. 
They sought a, a physical salvation from Babylon as they came back into the land. But as we saw at the end of chapter 48, the real problem was the wickedness in their heart. And until the wickedness of their heart is dealt with, new heaven and earth doesn't happen. And so the center point of, of Scripture, the center point of all of history is the cross, the Messiah. Because only through the cross and only through the Messiah is the problem of sin dealt with so we can enter the new heaven and new earth. And this has been God's plan all along. You and I, we're somewhere over here. And I don't know the day or the time. I'm not going to be predicting that. Don't worry. But we're somewhere over here. (laughs) Do you want me to put it closer? And we look at a fallen and depraved world that has been wreaked with havoc because of the sin that came into the world. And we think all is lost. And God says, no, it's not. No, it's not. I see the whole timeline, the whole time. Where we're at is still just a little blip. And we're looking back at the cross, and because of the cross, we can look forward to the the new heaven and the new earth. This is Isaiah. We did this in the introduction, but I wanted to come back today because to understand the impact of Isaiah 53, we have to understand where we've been and where we're going. And that the cross is the center point of everything that God has been trying to get through to us in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 53, finally, we get insight into what salvation is coming. Last week, Happy's text, Pastor Andrew talked a lot about salvation is coming. Anticipation, it's coming. I can't wait, it's coming. And in Isaiah 53, the plan is revealed. Some scholars have said Isaiah 53 is the heart of the gospel. Or it is the gospel of the Old Testament. Isaiah 53 is quoted or alluded to in the New Testament more than any other Old Testament chapter. It is that key and that central to what we believe. It is the clearest presentation of the Messiah. And it's the clearest evidence that Jesus Christ is the Messiah in the Old Testament. Dr. Mitch Glazer, president of Chosen People Ministry, a ministry to um, Jewish people and, and trying to, uh, to bring Jewish people to Christ, He credits Isaiah 53 as the passage that brought him to Christ. The passage. In fact, it's so much so is true that in the 12th century, Jewish rabbis changed how they taught Isaiah 53. Because in in 12th century, somewhere over here, they changed how they taught this passage because too many Jews were converting to Christianity through it. And so the rabbis got together and some decided to, to completely eliminate it. And that's why some synagogues won't even touch Isaiah 53. Others begin to teach it as, oh, that's not really about a single person. It's about Israel and the suffering is Israel and trying to tie it to things because somehow they had to keep people, they thought, from seeing that it was Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 8, do you remember Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch? He, he, the, the eunuch is riding along in the chariot and he's reading a scroll. Do you remember what the scroll was? Isaiah. And as it's quoted, he, he, he actually reads Isaiah 53 that we're going to study today. And at the end he says, who's this about? Is this about Isaiah or some other guy? And Philip says, do you want me to explain it to you? And he gets up and he shows through Scripture that it was Jesus Christ. 
And the Ethiopian eunuch accepted Christ on the spot and was baptized when they got some water. That's the power of this chapter. Turn with me to Isaiah 53. 52 and 53. We'll pick up the last three verses of chapter 52 and then 53. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a black one under a seat somewhere, somewhere around you. We'd love for you to open the Word and read this chapter for yourself. Know that I'm not making it up. Isaiah chapter 53. We'll start at actually 52 verse 13. And where we've been in, in, in verse right before this, in the section that said salvation was coming, in verse 10 of 52, it says, Yahweh has bared His holy arm, or He's rolled up His sleeves to show His strength before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. And so we come to 52 and 53, and this is the salvation. This is what God is doing. But as we read it, it won't sound so much like a strong arm. It'll sound like a humble servant. This is the fourth servant song, song about the Messiah that is coming. And it's comprised of five stanzas. In your Bibles, there's probably every three verses is, is set apart by a space that's different stanzas or different paragraphs. And, and we'll look through that. But really, the, the structure of the psalm or the song we're going to see begins and ends the same way with Christ exalted. And the Messiah exalted and victorious. And in the middle, we have a description of his life and how that's going to happen. Now, as you study, and something we don't use in English much, much anymore, but they did in Hebrew, this is called a chiasm, where you have the first and the, the bottom that are the same, and the middle is something a little bit different and usually the heart of the passage. Easy way for us to think about it, because we don't think chiasm. You're not going to go out and, and at lunch today say, I learned about chiasms today. Want a taco? Um, no, it, it, we don't We don't use that. So here's what I want you to think of. I want you to think of a sandwich, okay? And in a sandwich, you have a piece of bread and you have meat and you have a piece of bread, right? The bread serves as the framework, serves as the structure of the text. The meat is the meat. Mm. Maybe it's like a brisket sandwich or a tri-tip or something like that. The meat is the heart of the passage. That's where we're going today, sort of to give us some structure. The first and last stanza are the bread. They're the framework that holds everything together. The middle part of it is how we're going to come and see the heart of God's salvation. So let's dive in to this gem, to this jewel. Isaiah 52, verse 13 through 15, we have the first bread of the sandwich. The servant will bring cleansing and be exalted in an unexpected way. The servant will bring cleansing and be exalted in an unexpected way. Behold, he starts with, and this is a word that we've seen a number of times leading up to this. The idea of watch, see, pay attention to this. And this is a key word to say, now I'm going to reveal what my plan is. This is how it's going to happen. This is how I'm going to deal with the sin problem. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And this serves as an introduction. And the servant here we know is Jesus Christ from the New Testament and, and from everything we'll see today. And he says, behold, my servant will act wisely, which means to act in a, a wise way or an effective way to succeed. And so he's like, he's going to accomplish what I ask him to. He's going to do the things that I've asked him to. And in the end, he will be high and lifted up. He will be exalted. Oh, it starts with a glorious high. 
Interesting, as we we think of the words high and lifted up, we've heard that before, right? In Isaiah chapter 6, in verse 1, we read, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of His robe filled the temple. In Isaiah 57, it's coming, it says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. And so when, we, when they saw the phrase high and lifted up, they immediately knew that this was talking about the status, the place of God. Now it's interesting, in, in Isaiah, it's always used of God the Father, except for Isaiah 53, or 52 here. And, and you'll see clues as we go through this song, clues of both Jesus' divinity, He is God, and He is man. And you see both natures. And in this case, this is a clear statement of the Godhood of Jesus Christ. My servant, he'll do what, do what needs to be done and he will be high and lifted up because he's divine and he will be exalted. And so far, this sounds great and, and this sounds wonderful. But then we get to verse 14, which is a, a reference to what, how this will happen. As many were astonished at you, people were surprised. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. And that's where the record screeches to a halt. The needle goes off the end. We're like, wait, wait, you just said he was high and lifted up. And now it says he's going to be marred and disfigured beyond human semblance, which means it's going to be hard to even tell if he's a human. If he's a person, that's what he's going to go through. And so this is completely unexpected. This is surprising. But God is opening the curtain to his plan. See, we not only see high and lifted up in terms of God on His throne, but we see lifted up used in John 3 to reference a Messiah that will be lifted up on the cross. And He will be lifted up so He can be lifted up. He will be lifted up on a cross and marred so He can be exalted because of the salvation that He brings to us. Verse 14 is going to be expanded all the way through chapter 53. But he goes on now because this is summarizing the whole thing in verse 15. What is the result of his marring? What is the result uh, of this disfiguration? So so, So shall he sprinkle many nations. And for us, again, this might not be terms we're used to. Like sprinkle, throw some water on. You know, my kids do that sometimes as a joke. You know, sprinkle was a direct reference to the Old Testament sacrificial system in Leviticus 16. To sprinkle someone meant to cleanse them, to purify them. They would take a sin offering, and as they would make the animal sacrifice for a sin offering, they would take the blood and they would sprinkle it on the altar, or they would sprinkle it on people's thumb and and toes and, and forefingers. And it was a way that signified your sin has been paid for, you are cleansed. And so when you read in verse 15, so shall he sprinkle many nations... It's saying because he was marred, because he was disfigured, he became the sacrifice that would bring bring cleansing to all. Not just to the Jews, but to many nations. And it says, kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see, they finally get it. In the end, they'll be dumbfounded and speechless because the servant who is God humbled himself to be disfigured. And marred so he could bring salvation. And that which they have not heard, they understand. 
That's the first piece of bread. The servant will bring cleansing and be exalted in an unexpected way. So now we jump to Isaiah 53 and we get to the meat, the the center of the passage. How will this actually happen? And and I've put that, I've titled that the unfathomable plan revealed. Unexpected, unimaginable plan. It makes no sense to us. It's not how we would have done it. But it's how God did it. Salvation will come through the suffering Messiah. Not the king that comes and wipes out nations and, and all sin because that would include us, but the suffering Messiah who identified with us and took our place. And the next nine verses span the life of Christ from birth to death, from childhood to death, and then verse 10 we'll get to the resurrection. And in the, the next stanza, verses 1 through 3, we see that the servant would be an ordinary man. This is the unfathomable plan. He's not coming as a king. He's not coming in royalty. He's coming as an ordinary man. Chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And from the start, he's saying, okay, th- this, is, this is hard to believe. And, and he's saying... People have struggled to believe this. He grew up as an ordinary man, as we're going to see. But he would be the arm of the Lord. In fact, John quotes this verse to say that the Pharisees never did understand it. Who has believed this? This is crazy. And he goes on to say what's crazy about it. He grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. And here it's talking about his birth and childhood. He comes on the scene in a completely quiet and unassuming way. He came in a stable in little Bethlehem. Unassuming. Not in a palace. And and this is part of God's incredible, unfathomable plan. This young plant would grow up and he would be like a root out of dry ground. And and the, the root here has been used of the root of Jesse. It's been used of the Messiah before. But out of dry ground, it's like going to the desert and you see one little plant. Is that plant usually thriving? No. If there's no water, what happens to the plant? Withers. It dies. No good plant can come out of dry ground. And so we get the phrase, nothing good can come from Nazareth. And we see that God's plan is that Jesus would come as an ordinary person. The root refers to His human lineage. And this is a testimony to the fact that He is fully God, but He is fully man. He didn't look any different from other men. He looked normal, without majesty, which means He was unimpressive. His appearance was just ordinary. And so the question is, how does this, how how is this the arm of the Lord? This makes no sense. The servant would come as an ordinary man. Now understand this. If he didn't come as man, he would be unable to bear our sins. Because a man needs to pay and bear the sins for another man. It can't be God alone, but it, there has to be a like comparison. A guilt offering has to match the, 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 the crime. And so Jesus had to be man to be able to bear our sins. 
I also love the fact that he came as a man because that means he can understand. He experienced the full journey of manhood, of humanhood. And he can relate and he can understand with where we're at and what we go through. It goes on in verse 3. It says, He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. We esteemed him not. And the idea of being shunned and despised here has the idea of being misunderstood by being rejected. It's the ordinary man that suddenly shows that he's the Messiah and people are like, what? You're, you're Jesus. You're a carpenter's son. Go work on a table. Forget healing that person. Forget saving the world. Delusions of grandeur here. And can you see how people would mock him? Would despise him? We... we Phrases echo in my head like no prophet is welcome in his hometown. And he was despised. He was shunned. He was rejected. And with verse 2 and 3 together, the idea also has this idea that he was, he was considered one that wasn't even worthy of attention. He was an ordinary man. He was, uh, to them, he looked like, like just a little guy in, in a big sea of big guys. And so people didn't even want to listen to him because he wasn't worth listening to, they thought. They missed it. And so we see a a prophecy that Jesus would be rejected and despised on earth. Ray Ortland said, Why did the servant of the Lord sink so low? He had to become like us for us to become like him. What a beautiful picture of God's humanity, of Jesus' humanity here, rather. That he came to save. And so in this stanza, the, the, we see the servant would be an ordinary man. And then we get to verses 4 through 6, which are the heart of the sandwich, the heart of the passage. And we could spend hours on this, and books have been written on this. So catch this. The servant is our substitute, our sin bearer. The servant is our substitute, our sin bearer. And, and, and feel the weight of these verses. Because the whole book has been leading to this. The whole Old Testament has been leading to this prediction of the cross and what would happen. Surely. And the idea is that this remnant of Israel that are believers now are waking up and realizing God's plan. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. And it starts with this element of of realizing the unexpected. Surely He has borne our griefs. And the emphasis is on He has done all these things. You're going to see that through all these verses. He has borne our griefs. To be born is to, to lift a burden. It was the same verb that was used in Leviticus for the scapegoat that would bear their sins. See, what they would do is they would, they would bring all the children of Israel together and they would take their sins. And the, the priest would figuratively take their sins and place them on a goat. And, and they would sacrifice one goat. Another one would be sent off into the wilderness as the scapegoat. This is that same verb that says, the goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself. And so any scholar of the Old Testament, any, any good Hebrew, any good Jew would have said, that, that's the same as what, what the scapegoat did for us. He has borne 
our griefs, taken them on himself. He has carried our sorrows. The idea to shoulder, to accept someone else's burden in their place. When we talk about griefs and sorrows, we see someone that is taking our punishment and our guilt. As I thought through griefs and sorrows and studied those, it's really interesting. He doesn't even, he, we're not even to the transgressions yet and the iniquities. The griefs and sorrows were often things that followed sin. The results, the consequences of sin. The consequences of living in a fallen world. Have you dealt with some griefs and sorrows this week? Has a fallen world touched you this week in any way? It's annoying. It's frustrating. And it's the world we live in. When we rebel against God, when we, when we sin, there are always after effects of that, right? There's things that, there, there's the guilt, there's the grief, there's the broken relationships here on earth, the broken relationship with God. And verse 4 is saying, He knows all those things too. He took all those things on Himself. This begins the idea in these three verses of substitution. That He experienced all of our sin and all of its consequences, both here and eternal. That He actually suffers in our place. And so when when you hear, hear words like substitutionary atonement, this is where that's coming from that says Jesus took the penalty for our sin on Himself fully and completely. He felt it, he experienced it on the cross, and he took God's wrath as punishment for it. The verse goes on, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And the idea here is, at first glance, the, the people that were seeing him on the cross, that were seeing him take our sin and our sorrows, oh, God's doing this to him. And there's two ways that can go. God's doing this to them because it's His plan. So not really my fault. It's God's fault because He's planned for this all along. And and He has planned for it all along. But others would have been saying, ah, He probably deserved it. He probably did, did sin and probably did some things. And the idea is we take it lightly. They took it lightly that He died on the cross and bore our sins and bore our sorrows and our griefs. We esteemed or we counted him stricken by God and afflicted. But verse 5 corrects that in a powerful, sobering way. Because I say the Holy Spirit through Isaiah is like, no, 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 this wasn't, this wasn't because he did anything wrong, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And it's hard to read that verse without tears. It is hard to read that verse without the weight of our sin and the consequences for our sin and and what, what sin has done to this world just pressing in on us. It wasn't His fault. It was His choice because He loved us. And catch the, the wording here. He was pierced. The idea is pierced through. Like nails. Like the spear in the side. 
but it was for our transgressions, for our willful rebellions, for our wrongdoings, for our sin. We caused the piercing. Everyone who raised their hand and said they've sinned this week caused that piercing. Wow. That we can't take lightly, village. Four phrases here in a row. Second phrase, he was crushed for our iniquities. To be crushed is the cruel agonies that end in death. And so it's a a very vivid description of, of his death. He was crushed, not because he did anything wrong, but for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement or the punishment. He took the punishment for the sin that brought us peace. We, because of our sin, cannot be right with God. We can't enter the new heaven and earth unless our sin is dealt with. We are at odds with God, at war with God, until the sin is taken care of. Then we have peace or relationship with God. And this is a clear statement that says the way that that happens is because Jesus took the punishment for you. In your place. I still remember when my kids were much littler. I don't know if they would do it now, but one of my kids was about to get punished for something that they had done. About to get disciplined. And they're crying and tears and wailing and whatever. Maybe not wailing, but... And one of my other kids said, you know what? Why don't you punish me instead? Wow. That was just a little punishment. And they, they couldn't handle seeing the grief on their sibling's face. Jesus did that for us when the punishment was death. I think about 48, Isaiah 48, 22, the verse that introduced this section where God says there is no peace for the wicked. That's the problem. This is the solution. There is peace for those covered under the death of Christ. Amen? Verse 5 goes on, and with his wounds we are healed. With his wounds we are healed. The idea is open wounds that bring healing spiritually, and, and they understood this as well, healing physically, because in the end, in the new heaven and the new earth, we will be healed physically. And so when Jesus came on the scene and he healed people, That was like signpost that says, Messiah, that's Isaiah 53. He took sorrow and grief and gave us his peace. This is not a fair exchange. This is not a fair business deal. He was pierced. He was mortally wounded. He was killed. He took our punishment. He has wounds so we could have peace. It may not be fair, but it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's what God offers those that follow Him. Think through that verse. And I just put four lines in your notes to drive it home. He was pierced. He was pierced because of our transgressions. He was crushed because of our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement so we could have peace. He has wounds so we could be healed. 
our guilt and sin was imputed on Him or placed on Him. His righteousness and His peace was placed on us. Oh, the glory of salvation. Oh, the weight of His sacrifice. Six serves to remind us of the weight. All we like sheep have gone astray. Not just one or two of us. All we like sheep have gone astray. There is none righteous, no, not one. We know from Romans. We have turned everyone to his own way. And Yahweh, or the Lord, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And if you look there, how many twice all is used, and then every one. The idea is that he bore the sin of every person. The weight of everything we've done. Our stubborn rebellion to do things our own way. And he uses sheep as an example, because sheep do their own thing. You could argue whether or not they're doing it out of smarts or not, but they do their own thing. And one of the authors I was reading was talking about sheep that were, were at a slaughterhouse. Sorry if you're a little squeamish. And, and they, they, they have a hard time getting sheep to go from the pins up the ramp into the slaughterhouse. Huh. And, and um, so what they do is they have something called a Judas goat. And they take the Judas goat, and it's, it's one of their animals, and they've trained it to go down to the sheep pen and then walk slowly up the ramp. And the sheep are like, oh, it's safe. Let's follow him. And they go up the ramp, and the Judas goat has taken out a little gate to the left. And the sheep go into their destiny <laughs> because they'll follow anything. Oh, that looks good. Let's go this way. Isn't that a description of our sin? Oh, that looks good. Let's go this way. Oh, hey, let's, let's pursue this sin that I know is, is wrong. Let's rebel against God in this way. A little lying won't hurt. A little stealing won't hurt. A little sex out of marriage won't hurt. And we are perverting God's character and what He said. And we're just like sheep heading to the slaughterhouse. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. We're proud, arrogant, self-centered people. And the Lord has laid on him, the servant, the iniquity of us all. Again, the idea of substitution. Our sin placed on Jesus. And at that moment on the cross, when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced God's judgment and His wrath in our place so we didn't have to. Wow. This is God's holy right solution to the problem of sin. The song goes on in the last two stanzas. That's the meat of it. That's the heart of it. But in 7 through 9, we see the servant's willing sin payment of death. The servant's willing sin payment of death. Because we can come and say, okay, so Jesus died on the cross in my place. He took my sin and the consequences of my sin and the punishment for my sin. And he didn't do it just for me, but everyone in this room and everyone in this world for all time. Ah, man, he, he must have been forced to do that. But we see that he willingly did that because he loves us. In verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. 
Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And so as he's tried and as he's crucified, he doesn't call down a legion of angels to defend himself. He doesn't even defend himself under trial. But willingly and voluntarily, he took our sin and our punishment because that is God's plan to deal with our sin so we can be in relationship with Him. Don't miss this. Don't take this lightly. It goes on in verse 8, by oppression and judgment, words for unjust treatment. By oppression and judgment, He was taken away. And the idea is it wasn't even fair. He didn't do anything wrong. He's taken away. And, for, and as for His generation... Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? He was a victim. And people that were in his generation that were alive there couldn't even understand this. They didn't realize what was happening. That's just another guy on a cross. Another criminal who had done no wrong. Who was fully God and fully man. Who was bearing the weight of every one of our sins. People didn't know. They didn't even consider it. But yet he was stricken for the sins of all people. Verse 9, they made his grave with the wicked. And this, this is his death, his sin-paying death. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And we see the servant's purity. He had done no wrong, but he was counted dead with the wicked. And we know crucified with two criminals, one on the left, one on the right. And he was buried with the rich. And we know Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, came and asked for his body. And he was buried in a rich man's own, own tomb. Unjustly. The servant's willing sin payment of death. We come to the last stanza, because at that point it could be pretty depressing. Jesus is still dead and he's in the grave, but that's not where it leaves it. Because remember how we started the first piece of bread in the sandwich? He's exalted. He's lifted high. He brings salvation. And then we see how, and now we get to the last piece, the other piece of bread, so to speak. Yahweh's eternal plan brought victorious resurrection and complete forgiveness of sins. His eternal plan. This has been God's plan all along because He wants to take care of our sin so He can be with us in the new heaven and the new earth if we choose to follow Him. And we read, Yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush Him. It was God's plan that He die. And that might seem hard to say. But to pay for our sins, that's what had to happen. It's the only way. And he has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord will, shall prosper in his hand. And you see just this interesting reversal. We see that the dead is now alive. He'll prolong his days. He'll see his offspring. And, and virtually every scholar said this, this refers to his resurrection, that he will go on living. The story didn't end in the grave. He was crushed, but victorious over death as he rose from the dead. His soul makes an offering for sin, a guilt offering. 
And that allows us to be His offspring, to be sons and daughters of God, of Yahweh. It allows Him to prolong His days. This is the exaltation. And it goes on in 11. Out of the anguish of His soul, He shall see and be satisfied. By His knowledge shall the righteous one, My servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and He shall bear their iniquities. And He's summarizing what He's just talked about. This beautiful exchange that we give God our sin and our punishment and He gives us His righteousness. Oh, there is no better deal. But it's not a deal. It's a, it's a love relationship with God Almighty, the Creator of all things. And we see that here. He's righteous. And so His servant Jesus, the righteous one, makes us righteous. We are counted righteous. Even though we all admitted we sin, we are counted righteous if we follow Him. Because He takes care of the sin problem and bears our iniquities. Oh, I challenge you not to take this lightly, like I said. The weight of the iniquities that He bears is not something that we should ever get tired of thinking about. I don't care if you've been saved a week or if you've been saved 40 years. This should be a moment of awe that Jesus takes my iniquities. And if I sin this week, those are iniquities He's already taken too. There is no God like our God. Therefore, I will divide Him a portion with the many. And this is the victor's speech. Therefore, I will divide Him a portion with the many, and He shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because He poured out His soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And he's saying he's going to be considered a victor. He'll have the spoil with the strong, a portion with the many, because he did this unexpected, unfathomable thing of taking our sin, being brutally murdered and died on the cross in our place. And I love the end of this. And catch the end because we need to wrap up. And makes intercession for the transgressors. And, and in, the, in the original Hebrew, the, the verb for makes there changes tense. And we can't see it in English. But the idea is he did this, he did this, he did this. And then it gets to the intercession. It says, and he makes and is still making intercession for the transgressors. And so what that means is Jesus, because he's alive and at the right hand of the throne of God, he is still interceding for us. He is still mediating. Satan comes and says, you know what? I, I saw, I saw Andrew. He did some, he did some really, really incredible sins this week. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. That's already taken care of on the cross. That was one of the ones I died for. And he's interceding right now for you and I. We are not alone. Jesus was fully man and fully God. Came to earth as a baby and lived the full extent of humanity, of of the full experience of humanity. Never sinned. Never did anything wrong. And willingly went to the cross with everything you and I have ever done wrong. Took the wrath of God. Took the payment for that. And now hands us a, a check that says paid in full. Wow. I'd like to end with a couple worship songs. Because the weight of this needs to just rest on us 
not to be sad, but to be gloriously in awe of our Savior's plan, of His work. Because He's not still in the grave. He's resurrected at the right hand of the throne of God. Victory has been accomplished. Our sin is taken care of. It's gone if we believe in Christ. And so we need to worship. We need to worship our Lord. We're going to spend a moment remembering with communion. And, and in communion, we celebrate His plan, his, his death and His resurrection. We celebrate that He took our sin on Himself and gave us His righteousness. And the cracker, there's nothing magical about the stuff on the table, guys. This is just to help us remember. The cracker reminds us of His body. His body that was willingly given for us. That He chose to follow through with this plan. The juice, that represents His blood that was spilled as He was crushed. Not an easy word to use, but it represents forgiveness of sins. Because as you drink the cup, remember that every one of our sins has been paid for fully by Jesus Christ. And oh, there's joy in that. As we come to the table, though, I just I put some questions in your notes I'd like you to, to think through as we pass out the elements. And just bow your heads as we pass them out in a moment and think through these. The first is, have you given your heart to God? If you're sitting here today and you have never given your heart to God, you're still in the, the, the sin phase, the consequence for sin. Because while Jesus died on the cross and it's effective for all, or it's, it's, it's available for all, and it's enough for all, it only applies to those that accept Him. To those that come to Him. And I beg you, accept His gift to be our substitute. Accept it. Follow Him. And say, God, I have sinned but I realize you paid for that and I repent of that. I turn to you. Today's the day. If you do that today, take communion with us, please, and celebrate. But this is for those that have done that. Those that are following Christ. Second question is, do we still esteem Him not? We read that people esteemed Him. They they didn't give credit or count this as valuable. Do we feel the weight of our sin and how Jesus bore it? Do we appreciate this gift? Are we singing praises to the servant? Third question there is, are we continuing to confess sins and place them on the Lamb? Salvation isn't fire insurance. It's not a one-time thing that then I can live however I want. It's realizing even the sins I still commit, He paid for on the cross. And I can commit those to Him and He will forgive them and He will take care of them. Read through those questions as we pass out the elements and then remember together. Lord God, thank You for Your sacrifice. I can't say thank You enough because it is undeserved. I was the sinner. I was the one that deserved to be crushed because I've rebelled against You. And you stepped in and took that and took my place. Thank you, God. Lord, as as we take communion now, help us to feel the weight and the glory of that. 
and help the result of that to be worship. Not guilt, because you've taken care of that on the cross too. But worship and praise to the King of kings and Lord of lords. Thank You for Your sacrifice, God. May we live in light of it. In Jesus' name.